Shalom and welcome again to Secrets of Meaning, the podcast arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. Welcome, I'm your host, Rabbi Richard Address. And if you'd like to contact us with ideas or suggestions or other comments, feel free to email me at rabbiaddress at jewishsacredaging.com. We welcome back um, a returning visitor uh, to the Secrets of Meaning, Rabbi Stephen Moss, uh, and discuss his um, latest book, that's um, Living and Dying, Jewish Wisdom for Living and Dying, uh, subtitled A Spiritual Journey Through through the Prayers and Rituals of Ma'avor Yavok and Sefer Hahayim. Uh, disclosure, this is probably not a beach book. If you're looking for something to read on the cruise, uh, oh, you could read it on the cruise, but you'll probably gather a crowd as you read it <laughs> on, the, on the deck. First of all, Rabbi Moss, Steve, welcome. Welcome back. Thank it's you. good to see you. Hope you're feeling well. Hope all is good. Thank you. Yes. Uh, good to see very, you again, Richard. It's good to it's good to be seen too at this day and age. Um, <laughs> yes. So this this is a very very interesting book. Very it's it's um, it's not light reading. We we can establish that it's it's uh, text based. There's a lot of great texts in here. Some tremendous interpretations around the idea of end-of-life concerns drawn from two very, very distinct uh, traditional sources that you examine, and I know that you teach a lot uh, uh, around the country. What was the motive? What, what brought you? I know you in, your, in the introduction, you talk about this is really a, um, your thesis on steroids. Um, <laughs> so talk to me about the motivation for writing uh, Jewish Wisdom for Living and Dying. Well, I'll have to take you back to uh, 1974, uh, as I was yeah, at Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion in New York. And as uh, every graduating and ordained uh, student uh, needs to do is I needed to do a thesis. And at that time, my thesis advisor was Rabbi Eugene Borowitz. He should rest in peace. And I was, from the third year of rabbinical school, very involved in hospital visits uh, and nursing-assisted living facilities, but probably the facility that had the greatest impression upon me, my life then and forevermore, was being actually, as it turned out to be for 30 years, uh, one of the chaplains at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center uh, in Manhattan, uh, one of the most important cancer institutes in the world. And and so for my thesis idea, uh, I was kind of drawn uh, into the stacks at HUC, Hebrew Union College. And I began to become interested in the question as to what are the sources in our Jewish tradition uh, that help us to not only confront the issues of illness, dying, and death, but also what are the sources for the prayers, the rituals, etc., cetera, uh, which uh, I must say we really weren't taught uh, to the fullest extent, as I've learned over the years, uh, during rabbinical school. And so I went into the stacks, which you could do in those days, and I began to walk around in the prayer section, and I was, I believe, uh, I was drawn to Mavia Bok. Uh, there were at least two dozen different editions of Mavia Bok, both in the long form as well as in the Kitsor, an abridged uh, version edition. So I was fascinated by that book from that moment on, and that became the basis of my thesis. 
I already also was very interested in Kabbalah, in Jewish mysticism, uh, actually going back into my childhood. And Mavia Bok, written in 1626 in Mantua, Italy, by Rabbi Aaron Berechia, um, is both a text on death and dying in one way, uh, but also with heavy Kabbalistic influence. I, but for the thesis, I just couldn't uh, analyze Mavia Bok, uh, but rather I then compared it to another book written almost a hundred years later in Amsterdam by a Simon Frankfurter. Uh, and this book was also what is called a manual uh, for the Hevra Kedisha at that time. For those of you who are listeners who are not familiar, a Hevra Kedisha, literally a holy brotherhood, is made up of men and women, doesn't have to be only from a traditional community, who are there for Bikacholim, for visiting the sick, caring for the dying, as well as preparing the dead for burial, and obviously for the customs of funeral, etc. afterward. Mavia Boko is particularly interesting for me uh, because, as, as Aaron Berechia notes from the very beginning of his text, it was written for a community uh, of the Hevra Kedisha in Mantua, Italy, which was yearning to find the spiritual sources and resources for the rituals that they were performing. As I've learned over these many decades since I've been working in the book, and by the way, uh, in a sense, in 1974, in order to prepare for this, there is no and has never been any English translation of Mavia Bok. So I've actually spent these 50 years, almost 50 years now, uh, in translating Mavia Bok. Uh, and I am actually moving through it, and actually once a week through an excellent organization called Kavod Venachum, which Richard, you are very familiar with, uh, which is the National Hevra Kedisha organization. Uh, I have had now for four years a once a week class going through my translation. That's going to be my next book. So, in in the middle, what, in talking about Ma'avar Yavok, you write, quote, we need to write a new one for the 21st century, unquote. Why? The Hevra Kedisha members that I've met both for Kavod, through Kavod Venachum and other organizations, they too are yearning uh, to understand the spiritual underpinnings of what they do. Uh, let me give you an example uh, of a beautiful ritual, uh, which sadly enough is not taken on by many and certainly those in the more liberal community in the Jewish community, and that is Tahara, of preparing the washing the body, preparing it for burial. There is a beautiful ritual in which water is placed and, and run down from the top of the head to the feet, and then there's also actually a process of washing the body from the head to the bottom of the feet. By Mavia Bok, what Berechia does is not only does he describe the process, after all, as has been pointed out in Mavia Bok, but other texts as well, and that is the fulfillment of a mitzvah <clears throat> only requires the doing of the mitzvah. So by washing the body, you're fulfilling the mitzvah, period, and saying the appropriate prayers as you go down the parts of the body and wash each one of them, hopefully in a loving, and spiritual manner. It's sort of like doing Kiddush on Friday nights for Shabbat. Simply by offering the bracha, the prayers, you fulfilled the mitzvah and you drink the wine. However, the question is, and I'm not going to go into this now, what does that prayer mean in terms of the spiritual underpinnings of the very universe, which is why it's required that one holds the Kiddush cup in the right hand? 
but that's another podcast. However, for this one, let me go back to Tahara. In Mavia Bok, he spends quite a few pages actually describing how there's a meditation for each part of the body. So that as you're washing the head, you are not only washing the head, but actually washing the spiritual form of the head in another dimension, which will affect the neshama, the person, as it is going on his journey, as the top of the head um, is aligned with the higher spiritual realms called the spherot, the one of Keter. And as you go down each part of the body, he describes the process. What this means is, is, is that, that there is a slowing down of the ritual. Because as Berechia and other Kabbalists point out, uh, and actually non-Kabbalists as well have pointed out in the many writings regarding any ritual or ceremony or mitzvah, is that it not, it is truly not enough just to fulfill the mitzvah and do it, but rather a kavanah, a spiritual intention hooking the ritual itself to the higher spiritual worlds and thereby awakening a flow of divine, of human energy from below to above and the spiritual energy from above to below. That is the beautiful of this text. Steve, you know, you, you alluded to this and, um, there's, there's an increase, uh, and Kavod Vinichum is a representative of this. There's an increase in conversation and interest, uh, around end of life issues uh death cafes um uh the shomer collective other organizations that are popping up what's going on steve in your opinion what is it the faith that our generation is now understanding that you know we can't elude mortality no matter how much we go to the gym um what what's 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 your sense what's this you use the word spiritual yearning a lot Talk to me about what's going on here now. I think that during an age, particularly in which we're living in, in which there is so much flux, there is so much tension there, there in the in the world that we experience, uh, and uh, I think that there's a yearning uh, to get down below to that spiritual realm to help us maneuver uh, through the this world of chaos in which we're living in a very frightening world, to say the least. Uh, and certainly this has been seen throughout time. Uh, probably there are those who say that, uh, much of the, many of the Kabbalistic writings, uh, developed during the period of the Inquisition in Spain. Uh, and it was a way of the, those Kabbalists at that time trying to deal with how does one find God in the midst of all of this chaos? The same thing with the Hasidic movement, uh, in Poland in the 18th century when there was just so much, so many terrible things going on in the Jewish community. Um, and, and the beautiful of spirituality on the search for that uh, is, is that, well, take, for instance, the, um, the, the metaphor, the image of the ocean. You can have a tremendous amount of wave movement on the ocean. You could have storms on the top of the ocean, but ultimately way down below, it is totally calm and unaffected by what's going on on the top. That is what I think people are yearning for. And Richard, going back to the previous question, I think that's why to take a text like Mavia Bok, which I understand. After all, it was written in the 17th century. The way that we view the world in which we live in, the way that we view God uh, in our relationship with the divine is quite different from moderns. So we need to take the idea of helping to find the spiritual underpinnings that are described in Kabbalah and then you, and then rewriting them in a way that 
people can understand it today and thereby apply it, of course, to, first of all, dealing with the sick, dying, and the dead, but also in our general lives. What's very interesting is when my study group began on Thursday afternoons, by the way, from 1 to 2.30, we welcome uh, students always. We're now into our fourth year. Uh, is, is that in the beginning, the students thought, oh, this is going to be Mavia Bok talking about the rituals pertaining to the Hever Kadisha, which was the over two dozen students that I had in the very beginning. What they began to find out very quickly, only a small part of Mavia Bok deals with the actual rituals and ceremonies. The rest of Mavia Bok is how to live life in preparation for our dying and our death, which of course all of us will meet. Uh, I've been involved in the thanatology movement, the study of death and dying, uh, at least maybe close to 60 years. And I've come to understand that as we can understand what it is to, as best as any human being can, death and dying, is that in truth, actually, it moves us back to understand how to live. And that's really what Mavia Bok is all about. Steve, you are you afraid of dying? No, I don't think so. Uh, actually, there's, I, I'm, what I try to do in my own spiritual yearnings uh, is actually to prepare for death in that sense, to understand as we're taught in our tradition, and not just the Kabbalistic tradition, um, that ultimately all of us are going to face that. But the question is, how do we prepare our neshama, our soul, for its spiritual journey? as I point out to the Hever Kedisha members in our class. You're not just washing a body, you're actually washing a soul for his journey. So I understand I have a neshama. Actually, there are five parts of the neshama. The nefesh, ruach, neshama, chaya, and yachida. And I hope to be more reflective and aware that I'm working on this all the time for my own death. There's actually um, a meditation, which I, I think I've developed, but I probably have barred from many sources in which when I breathe in, just like a baby being born, I take on and say, thank you, God, for my life. And as I exhale, I breathe out and say, God, I'm giving back my breath to you, my life, because this might be the last breath that I take. Well, this ritual is, in a sense, a preparation for death by, in a sense, understanding what it is to live life, to take it in, and ultimately to let it out, because life is so fragile. Certainly 30 years of Sloan Kettering, um, experiencing the ups and the downs, but particularly, unfortunately, the difficulties of facing cancer. I understand that one, any moment, any of us can be stricken with an illness, a severe illness. And therefore, what does it really do to appreciate life? Do you personally, I mean, you teach this and you studied it. Um, are you looking forward to some sort of spiritual life after physical death? Uh, most definitely. I've come def strongly to believe in reincarnation. Uh, I do want to say two things in regards to this. Uh, is, is that my grandmother's grandfather was the last rabbi in our family. And what's very interesting is I have a portrait of his face, his, his upper body, so to speak. Uh, um, and he and right? I have the same face. His name was Zev Wolf Turbowitz. He lived in right. Krajai, Lithuania. And actually, four years ago, visiting Lithuania, I was actually able to visit his grave, uh, which was like extraordinary to find it in a, in a unfortunately, a dilapidated uh, Jewish cemetery in Kraj, Lithuania. 
Anyway, he and I had the same face. For a matter of fact, a number of years ago, when I met his son-in-law uh, in Pittsburgh, uh, and his son-in-law, Aaron Kessler, was 91 years old. When I knocked on the door of the apartment, of course, I had called and told him I was coming. It wasn't a total surprise. He opened the door and he almost fainted. He almost fell over because he thought his father-in-law, the rabbi, was reincarnated and came back to life. So I do believe that a part of the neshama of Rabbi Turbowitz is a part of me. But the other is, I really can't explain why I have, in quotes, and I say this with all humility, some facility in translating Mavia Boat. I don't understand it, particularly given my upbringing, uh, my ultra-reformed Jewish upbringing, uh, my ability to translate this text and to somehow understand it and teach it to others. I've spoken to this to my Kabbalah teacher in Jerusalem, uh, Eliyahu Shir, and he has agreed with me in terms of Gilgul, or reincarnation in Jewish tradition. I do believe that the part of the neshama of Aaron Berechia is within me which enables me somehow to do this. So if I can believe that the neshamot, the souls of the people of the past, can be through me, then I also believe that, and I pray, that my neshama will also continue, and who knows where the journey is. According to Chaim Vital, one of the great Kabbalists of all time, as he said, we actually have up to a thousand different Gilgalim lifetimes to go through to improve, to improve our spiritual state. Well. I think I'm on that journey. The question is, am I on 842 or 732? What lifetime am I on? Who knows? Could be number two or it's number, number three. Two. You I got a long way to go. Yeah, yeah. You got a long way. Yeah, listen, um, there's a part in the daily Amidah, if I'm not mistaken, which, which prays for healing, not a cure. And, and when I teach this, uh, it's always amazing late people you know they people say oh that's true look we we pray for healing talk to me about in your work and in your understanding drawn from your studies the the idea that one can be spiritually healed without being cured of a disease what does healing actually mean that is, I think, the question that you're asking. And ultimately, when a person, and I don't say this lightly at all, and I know so many people who are suffering on, on many different levels in life, physically, emotionally, spiritually, is, again, that image of the ocean. Uh, and that is, when we're able to find this sense and understanding through our religious traditions of our Jewish tradition, that there is an understanding that God is with us, regardless of what we are going through, then we have the ability to then, regardless of what is happening, we're able to go through it. And if there's a cure, there's a cure. If there is no cure, then we have to adjust ourselves, obviously, and it's not easy, but we are able to find that peace, shalom within. Uh, in Kabbalah, the understanding is is, is that, that there are numerous dimensions and worlds in which we live in. But the, there is underlying all of them the or ein sof, the light of the divine being that is within. And when we can find that through all the things that we go through in life, then no matter how good it is or how bad it is, which are only balances 
judgments that we put on experiences of life. Obviously, what could be good for one person could be terrible for another person. An example that I like to use in my classes is uh, you're, you're in a parking lot uh, at a mall. Uh, and how many of us, I don't know, when we start driving up and down, up and down every one of the rows, we start praying, oh God, uh, I got it. What's going on here? Help me sometimes. We even say that if it's really a difficult situation. And then all of a sudden, the best parking spot in the entire lot opens up. What am, I don't know about you, how many times you said this. I have, I know others have. You say, oh, thank God. Look at that. That person pulled out. I can walk right to the store. But my question becomes then is, when it turns out to be that no matter how hard you try, how much time you spend, you end up parking in the worst, the furthest spot that you could imagine from where you are intending to go. The question becomes, can you say thank you, God, for that lousy spot? That's the whole question. And I do believe, and this is, by the way, this is one of my practices, spiritual practices I do. The crap of life, as well as the beautiful things in my life, I try as best of all, as best as possible to offer a prayer of gratitude. Because guess what? Stuff of life comes to us, but when we are spiritually oriented, if we can believe that all comes from God in terms of healing, then is the question is, what is healing? That's why during my years of Sloan Kettering, and even to this day when I visit uh, people uh, in hospitals and all, um, I will never pray for them for complete healing because what am I, what does that even mean sometimes? Uh, as I think I mentioned this in the book, actually, um, one of the flaws that I uh, specialized on at Sloan Kettering was in pediatrics. I walked up, was walking on the floor, and this boy's grandmother came up to me and said, a grandson uh, is in a coma right now. He is filled with 40 tumors in his lungs. Can I recite the book of the prayers from the Psalms, the book of the Psalms of David for him? I, of course, said yes, because that's the way I'm oriented. I understood that's one of the things that we in our Jewish tradition can do, and that is to be able to offer a prayer no matter how difficult the situation is. So I walked into the boy's room. Uh, he was in the coma. I sat down next to him. I put my right hand on his hand, held it, and I began to recite the Psalms. But then what was interesting was, was that my mind took over, and it began asking questions. I began to say, what am I doing? What am I praying for? Do I pray that he can be completely healed and open his eyes and there are no tumors in his lungs? Well, there are such things called spontaneous uh, uh, spontaneous remissions, but is that something I could pray for? No. And then another question came in my mind. I said, well, should I pray that his, his, his lungs, the tumors in his lungs be gone? Well, the thing is, uh, is, is that that would be wonderful. But the question is, do I pray then that he awaken from the, the coma? Well, the fact is the coma is the way the body shuts itself down from pain. So to wake up from the coma but still have the tumors, that's not good either. I then said, well, do I sit here and I do, I, do I pray that he die, that he pass away? Well, in a sense, this is probably the, the most effective prayer of all, and our Jewish tradition does allow us to do this uh, because that would bring peace to him, to his grandma, to his family as well. But after I went through all of these and other questions, what was very interesting was all of a sudden the questions stopped. My mind stopped bothering me and bringing these questions up, quieted down, and all of a sudden, for the first time, I felt my hand in his 
and his hand in mine. When I was so absorbed with my mind and the questions, I I was not with him. But once my mind calmed down, I then felt our hands within each other. I felt the, the, the connection between my neshama and his neshama, and I then felt actually the presence of God. And I knew God was in that room. And basically, it's not about healing uh, in the way that we think about it. It's about God being with us through all the experiences of life, both when there is healing and when there cannot be in the sense of, well, whatever that means under the circumstances of each person, but also to know that God is with us. Uh, and that to me was the answer to my prayers. Is there some sense of then what you're describing in that, <clears throat> in that scenario, the word acceptance or the word surrender, not in the military sense, but in essence, giving your soul over to that which is unexplainable. Is that? I, hard? you hit it. Yeah. That's the, um, acceptance, um, Surrender, meaning surrendering it over to the fact that you know something, no matter what, uh, God is with us, uh, similar to my uh, first book in the title, uh, and I thank you for that podcast, God is with me, I have no fear, uh, the end of Adon Olam, Adon I leave Aloe Ra. Um, that's what it's really all about. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting, uh, in all of the spiritual things that I've gone through and the retreats I've gone through and, the, and my own personal experiences every day with God, uh, these are all called what? spiritual practices, uh, because that's what life really is. I think within our Jewish tradition, we are taught over and over again that life is a practice. To get it is right, is whatever that even means, in order to prepare our neshama for its journey uh, into the infinite and with the infinite as well. So I got to ask you this question because it's coming up in a lot of our classes now that we're doing as part of our work in Jewish Sacred Aging. Um, and when we get into some of these conversations like you're, you're talking about, and again, we're talking to Rabbi Steve Moss on his new book, Jewish Wisdom for Living and Dying. Uh, suppose, Rabbi Moss, I don't believe in any kind of supernatural God. I and mean, you're asking me to do to all this rituals and prayer, but I don't believe in anything out there. What? Well, then why, why do it? It's, why, why? Why? Talk to me. Doing the well, first of all, one thing is you're doing a Jewish thing, you know. I uh, certainly during my years of Sloan Kettering and also my years uh, doing a lot of hospice work. Uh, when all the doctors and everyone says there's nothing more you can do, this is the end. In Jewish tradition, there's always something we can do, and I do believe that even the most skeptical person at all, simply by being involved in a ritual or a prayer of some sort will bring some level of comfort, even in the back of their rational mind, they say, there's nothing that I'm praying to at all. But you're part of this line of tradition that is thousands, obviously, thousands of years old. Uh, and I think that this uh, does can bring a level of comfort uh, even to the atheist, let us say, doing a Jewish thing. Uh, and, and, with, you know, and again, you know, what is it, Pascal's Wager? Um, I'd rather, if I believe in God, I, and there is a God, I, ahead. If I don't believe in God, and there is a God, well, that's too bad, right? Uh, and, and so, why not? 
Uh, this is what I would say to that person. I think that you'd find comfort. I remember there was one woman, I walked into our room. She was breathing very, very belaboredly, probably from lung cancer. I, and I introduced myself. She uh, was looking up at me. I, and she said to me, Rabbi, can you kill me? I can't stand this breathing anymore. I can't take it. And I always felt that you have to be honest with everyone, and especially in situations like this. So I took her hand and I said to her, I want you to know, if I could take your life right now, I would, but I hope that you understand I cannot. But I certainly could offer a prayer for us to say as best as possible together so that you can find shalom, so that you can find peace and be able to at least go to sleep right now find a little bit of that peace from this terrible coughing you're going through. And so I began to chant the Shema. Shema in a very slow way. And I asked her, even if it's just a whisper or moving your lips, to try to do the same with me. Understanding, of course, that the prayer of the Shema is also the last prayer that we're supposed to say before we pass away. And within a few moments, she went off to sleep. Now, I don't know if she was a believer or not, or a skeptic or not, or an atheist or not. That ritual enabled her to answer that prayer, at least for the moment, of finding peace. So that leads me to this last question before we start running out of time. And that is, and you, and you have a whole section in the book on this, the power of the vidui, the confessional. What is it? How does it find its place, you know, this, this the confessional, the confession, the vidui? In Mavia Bok, certainly he, he spends a tremendous amount of time on the vidui. Uh, very, very, very lengthy confessions. Actually, my class, we quite, quite often we laugh and we say, you know something, uh, this is like the end scene in an opera where the person is dying for like 20 minutes and still singing, okay? If anyone were to actually go through all the rituals for the dying in Mavia Bok, well, you probably never die. Uh, it's very extensive. But as you might, I'm sure you know, Richard, is that actually there are people within even the liberal and reformed tradi- community right now who are writing modern vidouin, modern confessions. And it's a way of kind of, what is that expression? Putting one's house in order. Uh, there was a man that I was visiting in a local hospital in Long Island, uh, where my congregation was for 47 years, uh, who was dying. And he said to me, Rabbi, what can I now do? What can I do? I'm, this is my, I'm dying. And I recalled immediately the scene from the end of uh, Bereshit, of Genesis, from the Torah, of when Jacob called together his sons and offered words, not only a blessing, but instruction for each one of them. And I said to him, you know, you have quite a large family. Why don't we invite them into your room and you be able to speak to each one of them? And he did this. It was such a beautiful ceremony. Not only did he give each one a blessing, and not only did he critique each one's life <laughs> and offer some suggestions, but also he spoke about the way he lived with them. It was like a release of the stuff, the baggage that could bring one down, uh, because let's face it, part of the idea of the spiritual journey of Gilgul, of reincarnation, of moving on, is that within each life further, um, we do bring, in quotes, the spiritual baggage with us. And a vidui, a confession, is a way of putting that baggage aside. And Jewish tradition does allow for deathbed confessions in which one is able to be released from the negativity of one's life to really take on 
a new positive sense of where one is going for one's eternal future. Yeah. Uh, and more and more of our colleagues uh, in the non-Orthodox tradition, because I've been involved with a couple of these, uh, actually in the recent years, the, the reemergence of the Vidui, uh, I think it's become a very, very powerful trend now. People are starting to understand that this is exactly, it is, whether it's closure, however you want to put it, but it means something to the entire family. It is, it is an institutionalization of goodbye that is very, 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 very powerful. Um, well, this is why, this is why I'm hoping there can be a new Mavia book. Uh, and uh, Richard, I'll see in a couple of years for my next book, which I'm actually working on. What's very interesting is the longest chapter in Mavia Bok is chapter seven from the first of the five sections of the book. Uh, it is probably close to 150 pages uh, in the English translation. And it actually is all of the rituals and ceremonies that I've been sharing with you today and talking about in my book, etc., going from sickness uh, to death and beyond. I, and what I'm doing is, is writing this for future generations to be used in a very productive way. That is my prayer. That's my hope. Well, Steve, that's uh, a great Gilgul, and it's a good and and just uh, we'll, we'll we'll welcome you back. That you can give us your the the Morse translation of Maveri Avok. Um, we look forward to that. And and look, maybe it'll be a Netflix series. The way things are going, you the never know. Going, but, yeah. Well, congratulations. I do want to thank. May if I may conclude by saying thank you to all that you do, the Jewish Sacred Aging website, which I write on sometimes for yes, you um, do. Yes, for the work that you do uh, in bringing all of these very important subjects uh, to our community. Thank you thank very you. much, Steve. And again, the book is um, uh, Jewish Wisdom for Living and Dying. Uh, the subtitle is A Spiritual Journey Through the Prayers and Rituals of Ma'avor Yabok and Sefer HaChayim, Rabbi Steve Moss, available through the great God Amazon and um, hopefully uh, as many local bookstores as you can get. Steve, thank you very much. Tadara, Rabbi, stay healthy. Shalom. Stay safe. Thank you. Be, careful. Be careful of those parking lots in Florida because you do a lot of prayers in those parking lots. Most Please definitely. Me. Most definitely. To all of you, thank you very, very much for joining us on today's edition of Seekers of Meaning the podcast arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. If you'd like to, uh, and we do appreciate, uh, if you'd like to make a tax-free donation to help secure and continue our work, please go to the website, jewishsacredaging.com and click on the conveniently located uh, donate button. And as Rabbi Moss was talking about, he does write for us. And if you feel so inspired, if you'd like to write uh, something for the website, please get in touch with me, Rabbi Address at JewishSacredAging.com. Seekers of Meaning is produced at the studios of Bebetkin Media in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and a continuing shout out to our genius guru, Steve Lubetkin. To all of you, thank you very, very much for joining on this edition of Seekers of Meaning. We look forward to seeing you on our next uh, podcast TV show. In the meantime, please take care of yourself, stay safe, stay healthy, be kind to one another. Shalom. Mm-hmm.